I was in a small community of people who had nothing but love and it was all we needed. You know, sometimes you think, oh my gosh, we can't engage global issues by opening up a very small house for five women. That's crazy, right? But to me, what I learned in that action in this chapel with those people was, what is crazy is to think you can ever help make a difference and do nothing different. Becca Stevens is a speaker, social entrepreneur, author, priest, founder, and president of Thistle Farms. As an entrepreneurial leader, she has established 10 justice enterprises and has raised over $55 million in private funds. Stephen leads important conversations across the country through speaking, advocating, preaching, and writing. She walks the line between pragmatism and poetry in her message that love is the strongest force for change in the world. Becca Stevens, welcome to our podcast. Oh my gosh, Andrew, I'm so glad you've joined the podcast world. You're the generation of priests where people need a podcast and there's no kinder or more loving voice to talk about justice and love in the world than yours. So I'm happy, happy to be here. Since we've known each other forever, one of the things I've always remember saying is when I get on my deathbed, I want you to call Andrew Suter and just have him sit with me and do his loving pastoral praying over me. So anyway, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, my friend. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and I don't know of another person who has dug their heels into this work more than you have. And so I wanted to bring you on the podcast so that you could share with us how you got started in justice work in general, and specifically women's freedom. Sure. And I wonder who started the whole thing of every month has like this different focus and every day. It's wild to me that like there's a month for awareness for things when it's, you know, things that are just intrinsic in our systems that are oppressive and unjust or year long things. But I'm grateful grateful for focus. I've always felt like community is the oldest entity that we know for healing in the world. And so I became a priest so I could work in community to work on issues of injustice with other people who were seeing this as an expression of love. In other words, the heart of their faith that this work we do to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, visit the imprisoned, comfort the sorrowful, tend the sick and bury the dead. We could do that work, those corporal acts of mercy together in an effective way. And for me, central to community has always been women and mothers. You know, all the data shows if you wanna impact a community, invest in women. Mm -hmm. And that's where the greatest impact happens. If you want to help heal churches, if you want to help heal school systems, you invest in women. So it made sense to me to do this work with women. And so on top of that, early in my life, after my dad at five years old was killed by a drunk driver, I experienced sexual abuse in the church by a pastor. My dad was a priest and this guy was a pastor. And so, you know, after my dad died, he just took full advantage of the, um, I don't know, of the trauma that I'd already gone through. And so without knowing how human trafficking and childhood sexual trauma were connected, from a very early age, I was very, very, had a lot of compassion for women I was meeting on the streets and in jail in my, you know, budding ministry. 
And it made sense to me to really focus on that as my um, lens for doing the work of justice. Tell us about Thistle Farms and how that came to be. Sure. Now, you could probably do a better job of explaining Thistle Farms than I can. I mean, you've been involved with it intimately for years. But for brevity's sake, I'll just say that 23 years ago, we started a global movement for women's freedom here in Nashville, Tennessee, by opening one home for five women who are survivors of trafficking, addiction, and prostitution. Mm -hmm. And all we really want to do is say, we don't need to be a hero. All we need to do in the work of love is be a really good host and provide the time and the space and the resources a person might need to find healing and um, hope in this world. So we opened up one house. It ended up being several houses. It ended up after that um, becoming a justice enterprise, making bath and body care products. That moved into a cafe right in Nashville, Tennessee, employing about 15 women survivors. That became a national network, which became a global marketplace with now more than, I think it's like 1,700 women are a part of all the different enterprises we work with and coordinate. I think it's like about $5 million in annual revenue just from the sales that we do. And how about our sales have gone pretty well during COVID? Isn't that crazy? I think it's great that people are taking baths and supporting a cause that they can believe in. And who doesn't have the time for that these days? You know, all our stuff from all our, you know, 30 global partners, plus us, plus our sister programs, all of it's online. You can shop all over the world to help support women who are amazing artisans, powerful survivors, and you can do it all on one website. So it's a, that was the goal. The goal was to create this one space where people could get information and products from all over to learn about the issues, learn about some of the solutions and, you know, be um, challenged to do some actions, mm-hmm. you know, all of that at one site. So I feel really happy. I don't know if you've seen our website in a while, but it looks beautiful. I have seen the website and it's beautiful. And Becca, correct me if I'm wrong, but at this point in time, you've developed several homes in Nashville. There are a few residences there. And as the years have gone on, cities across the country have picked up and opened uh, Magdalene homes in their neighborhoods as well. I think there's something like 52 across the country. Is that right? Yeah, it's about 460 beds. And the beds, the, what makes them um, part of this national network is it's a long-term free bed. So everyone has these small communities, which is how, you know, you find space for healing and love is in this small, safe community. Mm-hmm. It's long-term, meaning you could stay for a couple years, and it's free, meaning you don't have to pay anything. It's a gift, just like all of us have been gifted with so much mercy that we can give back in gratitude, you know, that this is offering that to the next person. Yeah. And then the final thing to, that really makes it a sanctuary in a Thistle Farms bed is that there's no authority that lives in the house. One of the triggers for women who have suffered especially sexual trauma since childhood is authority. It's never been safe. It's never um, worked out well for them. 
So it makes sense that one of the triggers in recovery homes or halfway houses, anywhere you go, seems to be this authority figure yelling at people and telling them what to do. It just never goes well. So in my mind, what I wanted to do is just remove that person from the equation so that we could say, you know, the only people in the living in the house are the people living in the house. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of us will do whatever we need to do to support you as, as your servants. One of the things I remember most about a sermon that you preached years ago, and I've preached on it many times myself, is that there are two words that many helping agencies forget to ask those who come to them for help or for services, and that these two words have become central in the ways in which Thistle Farms is able to help women. And those two words are, what happened? And I'm just wondering if you could speak to that or if you have any theological insight or social insight on the importance of how those two little words um, can change the course in the way of help for so many. I love that you remember any sermon. That's just the hugest compliment ever. I don't remember it, but I'm glad I preached it. Um, <laughs> the, um, the question to me is an invitation for someone to tell a story. And the invitation to tell a story is, you know, critical in the journey of friendship, of healing, of community building. I mean, it's why Jesus spoke in stories and parables. We are engaged in them. It's why people all over the world talk about um, story as, you know, the turning the separation and the anger and the hate into camaraderie and friendship, you know, when I hear your story and I hear what happened, I feel compassion. I feel um, engaged. I feel um, compelled to um, maybe be a part of writing a different chapter of the story. And really my goal has always been for people to be able to tell the story enough that it loses some of its traumatic power mm-hmm. and instead becomes that story becomes a a transformational moment that transforms brokenness into compassion for others. And so people can begin to tell their story that what happened in a way that is healing for them and is healing for the person hearing. It's just so beautiful, Becca. Thank you. Can you speak to the ways in which St. Augustine supported Thistle Farms in the early days and how they rallied and offered their support? Andrew, do you know that I have been at St. Augustine's Chapel now for 25 years? Is that crazy? It's this little tiny chapel in the middle of Vanderbilt University, and I promise it's probably one of the smaller spaces you could ever be a pastor at. And I know that, I know on the totem pole spectrum or the climbing ladder spectrum or however you say it, the whole step ladder, that's what I think it is, of priesthood, what I am, a chaplain, is on the lowest part of that. Mm-hmm. And it's been the biggest gift in my life since the very beginning. And I have loved that I've had a home altar through all this work and all the travel and preaching and building communities. This has been the place. And I think it's because when I first thought of what I wanted the sanctuary of Thistle Farms to look like, there was probably probably 12 people that were part of the chapel, 12, 14 people, nobody. And everybody said, yeah, we're in. And Newell, you know, Newell, Newell's Mm -hmm. a great 
real estate, real estate person here in Nashville. Um, he built the bunk beds. Um, Bill Fahili and Valley Forrester came over and painted the entire interior. Um, a woman who worked at Vanderbilt Hospital bought five beds. It was like every single person did something. Mm -hmm. And we were able to open up this very, very small house, again, for five women who were the pioneers for, I believe, have helped change legislation and language and culture and, um, you know, the whole model for how we engage women who are on the streets. When we started, there wasn't the word trafficking. There was a lot more derogatory terms and, you know, people were put in prison a lot more often for a lot longer. You know, it's, cha it's changed since we started, but I was in a small community of people who had nothing but love and it was all we needed. You know, sometimes you think, oh my gosh, we can't engage global issues by opening up a very small house for five women. That's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, what I learned in that action in this chapel with those people was, you know, what is crazy is to think you can ever help make a difference and do nothing different. Yeah. yeah. I remember the parish hall, the fellowship hall being used for candles and working with women to get these candles made and to see if this experiment was going to work. And I think about this often because it's worked and multiplied a million times over by a space being offered to a group working for change. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the idea that we make candles, you know, in that little fellowship hall by hand is so crazy now because, you know, we're making 75,000 candles a year now. It's such a great, simple model, and people have known it forever. It's like, if I make something healing for my body, for myself, for the world, mm -hmm. for the earth, and I can sell it, and you feel that love and that healing and that power, you know, it's healing to everybody in the circle. Plus, generally for us, somebody gives it away as a gift. Mm -hmm. So then you become, you know, a great part of the story because you've offered it and shared it with somebody else. You become an evangelist. Yeah. And this whole cycle starts growing and love, you know, always grows in an exponential way. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's like, for me, the miracle is not that we started. The miracle is that we have kept candles lit for more than 20 years, whether we were, you know, in the chapel at St. Augustine's on the middle of the Vanderbilt campus and having some issues with codes, <laughs> Or whether, you know, we had to keep making candles through the flood of 2010. Yeah. Or, you know, gosh, the pandemic of 2020. Yeah. We didn't stop. And that is, it's unbelievable that people still light candles and say, we light this candle for the woman still on the street and the woman trying to find her way home. That's why we make them and that's why we light them. Becca, can you speak to the ways that you've seen communities change as a result of embracing justice work as a way of love? Sometimes there's discomfort in extending what we hear or want to practice on Sundays and putting that into real time into the world to do those deeds. Could you speak to some of the results that you've seen and how we move beyond fear into action? Well, for me, it doesn't, that's not the order that it happens in. To me, the order that it happens in that is kind of when Jesus talks about the authentic worship um, is you're out in the world 
loving and talking and healing with people. And it begins to inform how you're worshiping. It begins to inform how you gather. It begins to inform um, what the community looks like. Yeah. It's not that it starts just in this um, kind of isolated box somewhere. And then you decide how you're going to imprint on the world. It doesn't make sense if, for me, I've, this is my huge message. If you ever quote me to any seminarians or anybody in the world, say, if you're having trouble writing a sermon, go to prison. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I really believe that. You, the sermon will come to you immediately. Like, if you stay in the library and think about prison reform, that does very little. Mm -hmm. But if you are going and visiting the prison... It will shape your church and it will shape your worship. It will shape your preaching. It will shape how you understand the readings in the gospel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. You do it. And that's what I think is so beautiful. And you've done it. You've done it with very, very intense populations of folks, especially like I'm thinking about the youth when you were there mm -hmm. and all that you did for, I think they were incarcerated youth. Almost. Last chance, last chance before incarceration. And you would call me and you were having deep spiritual, um, good and bad, but experiences and questioning and feeling mm -hmm. so much about the world. And I think that stuff forms us. Yeah, and it's not easy work, but if all of us are, you know, do what we can do, to educate and learn and act our worship will be okay our budgets will look okay yeah. you know the crazy thing is now you know you know this there's probably six or seven hundred folks that are part of this little a-frame chapel and we have to you know meet yeah. in a different setting and now you know just online but none of that would happen without really being relevant and engaged in the world so the mission started, it grew, we built a community and staff around it, you know, we started seven other not-for-profits, it wasn't just Thistle Farm, so then it was about burial rights in Larkspur, about children in a community in Ecuador mm -hmm. where plantations had taken over and we starting and starting a school about a group of women in Mexico, about refugees in Greece and starting Love's Welcomes. You know, it's, it's a continual journey to do this. Absolutely, absolutely. What do you think is the biggest misconception about human trafficking? That it's a choice. I just wanna ask people, if that's a choice, what were the options? You know, I've never met a woman coming off the streets or out of prison who hasn't been raped, mm -hmm. you know, in 25 years. So seriously, yeah. that doesn't feel like a lot of choice. It just feels like a lot of brokenness and a lot of broken systems. The other myth is that somehow um, it's an issue, uh, it's a legal issue. So if we just legalized prostitution, then we wouldn't have the same problems. And it's such crap because unless you're going to legalize child rape, crack cocaine, um, trespassing, robbery, all those things, right. you know, the work is not going to change. This starts way before somebody sells their body. 
Yeah, so the idea of trafficking, the misconception is that no one chooses it. It's a result of a community sin, and it's a result of a lack of attention and a lack of care for the most vulnerable. Specifically neglected care for some folks. I mean, it does, it is, you know, women of um, all walks of life are subject to human trafficking. But you think about refugees, foster kids, the most vulnerable folks that we have purposefully neglected are the people most vulnerable. And so that's what also is heartbreaking to me is that one of the things that we still need to do is link human trafficking with refugees. We need to link foster care systems and human trafficking. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's all this stuff out there about like, oh, you better be careful, you know, somebody will steal your little girl out of your minivan. It's like, that's not how this works. It really works in systematic neglect Mm -hmm. and lack of resources that have um, been offered to some folks in this world. And I know in my own life, when you have one trauma, it's not like it's an isolated instance. They build on each other. And that's what it happens too. So for me, like after my dad was killed by the drunk driver, of course, a predator steps in. And of course, then other predators come in because you become somehow the more vulnerable, the more preyed upon, not protected you are in the world. And I just experienced a tiny portion of what folks who have served in the years at Thistle Farms have gone through. Becca, what for you inspires hope? I think the work inspires hope. (laughs) Not in the work, but the work. I mean, that's what always for me, I can trust work more than inspiration and keep going. You know, I don't think every day we're inspired to work, but every day if we keep doing it, we can trust that inspiration will come. Mm -hmm. That's how I think of it. And so I just keep staying and keep doing it, keep getting up, doing the next thing and thinking, we got this. Becca, I have one more question for you today. In your book, Love Heals, you speak about living beyond our fears. And I'm wondering what the best practices are that you have found to step out of our comfort zone and live beyond our fears? Mm, That's a sweet, sweet question. And there's so much fear in the world right now, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And I've been doing a lot of reflecting on it. We, you know, we had a bomb that hit our city on Christmas morning and it destroyed, you know, blocks of our streets at the heart of downtown where songwriters and hostels and parades always took place. You know, it's, it's a very visible place that they blew up. And I felt compelled to go down there and afterwards and just see it. There was something in me. It's like, oh, my gosh, so violent, so fearful, so angry. And when I went down there, you know, obviously most things were blocked off, but you could see through the alley. And it really looked like a mountain of rubble. And I kept thinking about remnants and rubbles and leftovers and all this stuff and how the fearful part of us has all these reactions to that, the aftermath, whether it's get rid of it all. I never want to think of it. Hoard it all because we'll never get it back. But then there's this place where we're willing to walk through that rubble, like sift through it literally 
and find the pieces and think of new dreams and a way to rebuild that's better. And I think that's the best example I can give right now of what love, love looks like beyond the fear. It is walking through the rubble, letting the pieces go that we need to let go and picking up the ones that we need to rebuild. I try to never forget that I came to this work as a beggar. I needed it. I needed to feel that love heals. I needed to feel the hope. I needed to feel the transformation. And as long as I don't ever forget that and how this work has transformed me, I can do the work gratefully. I mean, that's huge. To do the work 25 years and to wake up grateful, that's a big deal. And that is so transformational. It's transformed my family. I mean, my kids were raised at Thistle Farms. I raised three sons who respect and love women. It's influenced my husband, who is a songwriter. His work and his songwriting and his career. Um, it's influenced my writing. It influences how I preach, how I spend my money, how I dream new dreams. This work has completely transformed my life. I love you, Andrew. I love you too, Becca, and I'm so glad you took the time to chat with us today. And I'm going to take you up on your offer for a podcast only about healing wounds. Absolutely. We're going to figure out this um, sound better. And then maybe like the first week of Lent, we'll play with the oils together for a podcast. All right. Peace and love.